Hey y'all, you know we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com slash femfreak. Also fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com slash femfreak. Jane Fonda could do the AMC promo video where heartbreak feels good in a place like this, but Nicole Kidman couldn't do Clute. That's what I'm getting from this conversation. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and my co-host Kat Spada and I are nearing the end of our series examining Hollywood through the decades. Today, we're discussing an era where scandal plagues Washington, reproductive rights are making headlines, and the Equal Rights Amendment has yet to be federally ratified. Nope, we're not talking about 2022. We're looking back half a century to the 1970s. Daniels. What the hell is going on here? Are you going to take Johnny away from me? Take a nap, because you're going to need all your energy tonight. Silly boy. And I am thrilled to be chatting once again with Feminist Frequency family founder, Carolyn Pettit, managing editor of Kotaku, and our tour guide through the decade of Mahogany, The Exorcist, Cabaret, and so many more culture-defining films. Welcome back, Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And yeah, as you rattle off some films of the decade, I was thinking, you know, I'm reflecting a little bit on how difficult it was for me to choose two films to, to, you know, to focus on for this decade. But I I think the two films that I picked offer an interesting cross section of portrayals of women in the 70s and how they kind of evolved, you know, from decades prior, how they reflected the sensibilities of the era uh, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. You well, you have big shoes to fill because almost everyone that I asked to be on this uh, series with us wanted the 70s like the 70s is, Uh, you know, uh, like you and you just answered first before (laughs) for everyone else. I feel like the Uh, 70s is just this like epic film period of time that people just glamorize so much. Right. And well, and well, what's kind of interesting about that, uh, first of all, I have no business being the person to talk about the 70s, given the the pedigree of folks you've had in this series, you you know, Shelley Stamp and like you have um, Walter Chow, one of the one of the, you know, great film critics of the modern era, I think, talking about the 80s. So, you know, I am I am just a uh, you know, a, a fan, a movie buff who happens to have this association with feminist frequency. But anyway, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be talking about this decade because, yes, I mean, it's so well, uh, it's so, I mean, you know, you use the term glamorized, but part of what's so interesting about the 70s is that you have these directors, you have, mm. you know, filmmakers like, of course, Scorsese and, um, I mean, Spielberg, Lucas, but, you know, Scorsese, De Palma, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who really in a lot of ways wanted to kind of de-glamorize movies, I think, Mm -hmm. and and get to something that kind of broke away from like studio gloss and like um, genre conventions, you know, sort of um, very, you know, focus tested or formulaic films and do things that really focused on people in a more natural way. And I think you also see a lot of um, um, sort of suspicion of power and suspicion of like, institutions, American institutions in film in the 70s. And so, and in fact, one of the films we're talking about today, uh, Clute, um, starring Jane Fonda, is considered, it's by a director, a filmmaker named Alan Pakula. And it's the first film in what's sort of loosely, what's sort of considered his loose, unofficial uh, paranoia trilogy, it's often referred to as, and that, that includes, so Clute being the first film, uh, the Parallax View, starring Warren Beatty, and then uh, lastly, All the President's Men, which is his film, uh, uh, starring Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford about uh, Watergate, and so, which is obviously a very much a film about, 
you know, a failure failure of like American institutions and yeah. you know corruption and suspicion and yeah. So what a do really you think, a fascinating like, era. Of do you know film. what's going on in the mm. period that has proliferated that? Like, mm. um, we we've talked in previous episodes about how um, Hollywood perpetuated the, this mythology about. American society that wasn't actually true, right? Mm, um, right? And this feels a little bit more like pulling the weeds out from that, right? By being like, no, well, I guess pulling the weeds is not yeah. a good analogy here. <laughs> I, but you know what I mean? Like uh, the underbelly of like, no, this is actually more realistic to what's happening in, in you know, the society right. potentially. Right. And well, of course you have, you know, the filmmakers that are kind of uh, emerging in this era I mean, a lot of them, they are people, they are folks who have grown up, say, with like the Vietnam War happening, mm -hmm. for instance. Right. I mean, um, clearly and the civil rights movement, um, these things that I think uh, galvanized a lot of like um, activism, a lot of challenging, um, challenging, you know, authority, challenging, like respected institutions and um yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's definitely like in the, you know, just in the mix sort of ideologically in terms of shaping like the 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 tone, the kind of gritty tone that you get in a lot of 70s films and and just the the deeper. Um, yeah, desire to kind of shake things up and um, and yeah, and and, and not not just do the not just have the same kind of reverence toward um, the, the, the status quo and the mm. kind of patriarchal, maybe romantic, happy ending to, you know, to films to, to, you know, to kind of break free of a lot of that stuff and do, do different and challenging things that are going to challenge an audience in some ways. One thing that's been really interesting thinking about these movies, not as one-offs, but as part of a continuum throughout the 20th century, is how the filmmakers were, and the, the types of stories that were told, and the audience behavior, how it was all kind of influenced by the media that came before it. And in the 70s, probably the 60s and the 70s, is when we have our first generation of filmmakers who grew up with Hollywood being a big part of their lives and culture, like sure. they would have... You know, when we get to an unmarried woman, there's a fantastic scene where we talk about some of the the women's mm -hmm. uh, the the women stars of cinema of the 40s and 50s. Um, and then I always think of the 70s as as kind of the influence of the home video generation of filmmakers that were coming into prominence when I was younger. And mm -hmm. you know, now we're probably about to see, or we are seeing, the filmmakers who. Um, have come come of age with the internet being like a very common totally. presence and yeah. it, with our previous guests in the series you know we've had some academics talking about their uh what they've published and how they get into this but i think that <laughs> what has unified everyone is like like you said being a fan so i'm curious before mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. talk more specifically like what the 70s you could say this about every decade but there's there's you could look at just the horror of the 70s. You could look at sure. just the sort of sexual thrillers or just the big blockbuster action movies in The Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like, what draws you? What made you want to sign mm. up for the 1970s episode and be first? Yeah, well, sure. I, I, it's really, it's, and, and I think both of these films um, really illuminate this. It's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a newfound focus on, like ex on character ahead of plot. Um, I think you get right. I mean, I think, I think in, you know, the, I mean, I love so many like film noirs of the forties. I love so many studio films, but I think what they, you know, in, in sort of, uh, I think what a lot of the directors who, who broke out in the seventies were, um, even we're, we're interested in, in exploring character in more complex and I would say natural or naturalistic ways than so many studio films of the, the decades prior. So, you know, and I think one way that that's reflected, for instance, in both of the films that we're talking about today, 
um, Clute and a married woman. Um, well, Clute, I would say, interestingly, it's it's it has like thriller DNA. The mm -hmm. plot has like you know thriller elements to it. But when you're watching it, I don't really feel like what Pakula is trying to do is is so is so much pull us into the um, the machinery of the thriller and you know generate suspense so much as he is interested in in exploring uh Jane Fonda's character who you know who who among other things you know gets to be explored through scenes in which she's talking to her therapist mm. about like very complex things that she's feeling and you know internally her inner life how that's being explored and and how that's being changed by by what she's going through in the plot and then you know similarly in a married woman um you have uh the the main character in that film also like starts going to therapy after her divorce and that also gives you know it's kind of a device that the film can then use to give these characters an excuse to really talk to us you know the the viewer about like their inner lives and and the ways in which the circumstances that they find themselves in are are like challenging their existing notions of themselves you know are making them feel things that they previously didn't feel um and yeah you know i i i really enjoy that like that rich exploration of character that you get in these films through, yeah. through that, that device and just just throughout the films more generally. It's been a long time since I've watched any of those like like charade or the 1960s sort of caper movies. And mm -hmm. I don't remember those as being character pieces. I remember it being like, let's get from set piece to set piece. Um, yeah. And this, you know, Clute reminded me, well, Donald Sutherland is in it, but I had recently watched Don't Look Now, where mm. half of the movie is about is sort of like a sexually explicit married couple Boy, dealing the with sex grief. scene in that movie the <laughs> sex scene and don't look now uh, mind-blowing it's really something and like yeah donald sutherland is so i don't know he's so um he's so like serious and i don't expect him to be serious for some reason but then the mm. other half of it is this like crime in venice and maybe it's supernatural and it's like oh yeah this is this is definitely pushing boundaries that they weren't pushing or even like we taught i loved that you picked kind of two different genres of movie because we have like a romantic sort of comedy yeah. drama in an unmarried woman and that also is leaps and bounds different from the types of like romantic comedies right. that you might have seen in the 50s and 60s right Right. And, and the possibilities that it charts for its character, you know, even like there's a um, so the an unmarried woman is in the Criterion collection and the accompanying essay is by the critic Angelica Bastian. And in it, she notes that um, the women's, you know, there, there used to be this genre that the that studios produced called the the women's picture. And she, you know, and she kind of places an unmarried woman in a way in the tradition of the women's picture. But you know the women's picture even when it even when it sort of celebrated for a while women um being maybe more independent being you know women being challenged by and overcoming challenges in their lives typically the women's picture still in the end had the patriarchal you know ending where like she the way she really ultimately quote unquote like finds her place or finds you know fulfillment is the happy ending of being paired up with a man in a in a mm -hmm. monogamous like exclusive relationship and so i think it's so fascinating that an unmarried woman you know the the experience of being divorced opens up the the main character to um to 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 new kind of exciting possibilities with men and you know and she but you know in the end you know, when when offered this option to have what would clearly, I think, be a pretty exclusive relationship with this guy, this exciting man that she's met and, and where her life 
would be kind of secondary to his because it would be all about, you know, his painting, like him doing his painting. And that's why he has to be in Vermont or whatever with his family. If I go two days without painting, I may never paint again. (laughs) Um, So his career and his ambitions are so important (laughs) and hers would be less important. Yeah. Um, She opts not to go with him. And you have this final image there, therefore, of her, you know, wandering down the streets of New York with this ridiculously huge painting that he's given her. And it's kind of like wonky and awkward, her walking down the street. But it's also like she's not to me, there's like this exciting possibility in that still the openness, the unknown, right? Um, her not being paired off with I mean, the guy. I read and, that as he's a fucking dick <laughs> leaving her with this mm. thing. <laughs> yeah, sorry. yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's no, fair, but, no, but I, so, I, I'm, I see what you mean, but I just remember being yeah. like, what a fucking mean thing to do to somebody, right? Like to like, it's this priceless piece of art that she can't just abandon, but she also can't put in a cab and whatever. Um, <laughs> I think something that was interesting about, uh, that I was thinking about after I read that article from Angelica Bastien um, is how one of my frustrations over this series has been these films that are about women where the women are like, um, (laughs) where the women are like kind of cool at the beginning. Right. Like I'm Mm. specifically thinking of like Roadhouse with Ida Lupino, which Kat, you and I were like, wow, Ida Lupino, like she's really Mm. cool. Um, But they Mm. all kind of fall into this, pattern at the end even the um the um femme fatale energy which i know a lot of like been a lot of words written feminists tend to really gravitate towards that those the complicated uh, woman yeah like it still ends up feeling a little like uh they're just like giving everything up for the men or they're just like you know like there is a complicatedness but but it it just doesn't feel the same as something like unmarried woman right like Mm -hmm. there there's a different energy here where like it isn't the complication here does feel, I mean, obviously it's like more of a realistic story, but, but like, it doesn't have this happy ending, right? It doesn't have, or I mean, I guess it kind of does, but it doesn't have the like button up Americana happy yes. ending to it. Right. Right. Um, right, it, right it just right. feel like it just feels very different. And even with, well, and Clute kind of did that, right? Clute kind of gave you that, like whatever. It's, it's interesting to me, like the contrast there, because in unmarried, in an unmarried woman, you have a woman who starts off in a monogamous relationship with a with a man, her husband, the kind of traditional, you know, family unit. And at the end, there's maybe the liberation of her saying, you know, no, I'm not going to go with you to Vermont. And then, you know, and we leave her there. Whereas in Clute, you have this woman who at the beginning, her normal her like the state in which we meet her is sleeping with lots of men and kind of you know uh yeah enjoying that but but not enjoying it like physically sexually like she doesn't have take pleasure in it in the sex as sex she enjoys it for the control that she feels in the in the you know the dynamic Mm -hmm. when she's with those men and then she meets clute donald sutherland this very kind of you know, a traditional kind of like corn fed, like decent, you know, like fundamentally decent dude. The end, it's like she's kind of being a little unclear maybe with herself and, you know, about whether anything with him is going to last or if she's really committed to it because she says on the phone like, oh, I'll probably be back in the city next week or whatever. But I feel like really she does want to, yeah, like pair up with him. And, and therefore the ending of Clute feels more traditional in that regard and more like she's no longer that, you know, um, troubled. Yeah. She's not less the quote unquote troubled woman she was before. And now maybe with this man, she has hope of being a more kind of... Um, uh, domestic, I guess, woman, perhaps, or something. Yeah. Um, Kat, you want to uh, introduce these films since we're basically diving into oh, them for yeah, listeners who yeah. haven't, who aren't aren't familiar with them. Well, they'll be <laughs> mimicking my experience because I feel like I had spent about the last fifteen years, like when I was a an intern at Universal Studios in my in, when I was in college. One of the assistants was so mad at me that I had never seen Clute, and so he showed me scenes from it. And I still hadn't watched it until just this weekend. So 
Um, I am so glad I finally have. Um, But we watched two films, as we've talked about. Uh, Alan Pakula's Clute from 1971, in which Jane Fonda plays a sex worker who teams up with an investigator, played by Donald Sutherland, to search for a missing person who'd once been a client of hers. And in Paul Mazursky's 1978 film An Unmarried Woman, Jill Clayburg stars as an Upper West Sider who navigates dating, friendships, and parenting an independent teenage daughter in the aftermath of an unexpected divorce. I have a very important question. Yeah. Mm. Why the fuck is it called Clute when it's clearly, so clearly about Brie? Brie. Like, I've seen the, the, the box cover. Uh, I'm a big fan. I really like Jane Fonda. Like the more I see of her work, the more I'm like, of course she's a movie star. Like she's just so captivating. And I assumed that she was Clute or that Clute meant something else. Like I just, it kind of fucked with me at the beginning of the movie when it's like detective Clute, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what the fuck? And then, and then it doesn't even become about him, (laughs) which which I I was appreciative of, but I like to think of it as a sort of the Legend of Zelda type thing where like, <laughs> where like it's about it, like the title is him, even though he, like like not to indicate that he's the most important character, but even though he's not the most important character sort of thing. You know what it's, I mean? It's a fascinating choice, I think, like especially yeah. during this time. Um, it's almost like. We want to make a movie about a woman, but we're not allowed, so we're just going to call it <laughs> yeah. Dude Central. It does, you know, it does like, sort of, yeah. Clute and wanna, the girl, like, yeah, Clute and, and his gal Clute Friday. Girl. Yeah, <laughs> um, I did think it's interesting that the the opening shot of Clute is of a like a little tape recorder, right? And you mm. and, uh, during the opening credits, you just hear this tape being played, and it reminded me. To that, that another th- kind of a bit of a thing that's kind of a theme or through line in a lot of 70s films is this interest or this fascination with like surveillance and recording and things like that. So, I mean, if you, you have this film, you have um, Coppola's The Conversation, which, um, you know, in which recording and surveillance plays a huge role. Uh, you know, I th- it's obviously in to some degree in um, All the President's Men with Watergate, the tapes there. Um, you know, at the in the early '80s, you have Brian De Palma's um, blowout, where John Travolta is like this sound effects recording guy in the movies, and happens to record a um, you know record something really really important. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I just I just find that so interesting that I guess I guess like that kind of recording technology in terms of it being something that consumers that people could use, carry around with them and use was probably fairly new um, at that time, I would imagine. And maybe just, um, I don't know. Just well, and it's a little bit to- maybe inching towards the sort of the Cold War 80s yeah. paranoia also. Um, uh, a very important question. Do you think the Feminist Frequency account will retweet me if I make a meme that says, Mr. Policeman, I gave you all the clues. Yes. Great. I just wanted to make sure I put that on the record yes, as a yes. verbal promise. Okay, so you mentioned, though, not just the recording and, like, obviously Watergate, I think, is one of the biggest things, like, cultural touch points leading into the 70s. And mm. we're not historians here, but there's there's something that I really identified watching both of these movies, which is, like, I wish I knew a little bit better what kind of legal independence or protections women had in the 70s. Mm. Because, like, when we were watching our movies from the 30s, a divorce was something that a man could choose, a woman could not. Like, it was very difficult for a woman to seek a divorce. And also, like, and this is, of course, how it was portrayed in cinema and not necessarily what it was in real life, but, like, sex work would have been a last resort of a desperate person. Um, Mm -hmm. here, like the divorce isn't her choice, but the relationships in an unmarried woman that her friends talk about, they all seem to have a little bit of agency. Like there is talk about money and she has to have a job and where she's going to live, but it's not, you know, I was thinking like, oh, was this still the time when a, could a single woman get a credit card? You know, like, I don't know Mm -hmm. what the rules were at the time. And obviously to see how Jane Fonda's character is portrayed in Clute, 
she has so much agency over her. I mean, maybe it's not perfect and we see her kind of ebb and flow with it, but her choices that she makes as a sex worker are like independent choices that she's making. She has like, you see the pimp, you see the woman that she has like worked with to get dates. You see her talk to her therapist about when she wants to take a job and when she doesn't want to take a job. And there's a lot where I was kind of just surprised to see these women having choices. Um, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I clearly, you know, she is a, you know, what would at the time be, I think, called a high class call girl, right? A, not, she's not, she has a certain, there's a certain, yes. She's not certain, picking up men on the sidewalk. She right. There's an arrangement. Yeah. She yeah. has like a service that she calls into or, you know, a, and kind of or like a number that she calls. Just, hey, you know, do you have anyone like a commuter, a commuter for me? And it's it's um right. There's like a certain prestige within mm -hmm. within that, you know, profession. There's like a it's obviously a, a few tiers elevated um, from from other. Yeah. What, what I feel kind of work. striking about both of these is how much mental health discussion yes. involved so like yeah, yeah, both of yeah. them had therapists in the 70s which women you know, i think yeah which i think uh there's a little like a little bit of energy of like you know our parents generation would never go to therapy right like that was just a mm -hmm. thing you would do so so that was really interesting and then also much more so in unmarried woman like specifically talking about um anxiety and yeah, and like depression yeah. and they and, and include and this one both like around loneliness and like willingness right. to let people in or not. Like it was just a, a really interesting yeah. through thread of these films. Yeah. And I mean, there's like there are there are. So there's one line I made a note of in my notes in in Clute just because when she's talking to her therapist, just because I thought, you know, wow, that's so the line that there's one line Jane Fonda says to her therapist where she says something like. Um, when you're used to being lonely and someone comes in and moves that around, it's sort of scary, I guess. And I just thought, you know, how, what a natural sounding, like mm. it doesn't sound like a line that a screenwriter wrote for like maximum clarity or like yeah. trying to like, yeah. you know, it's like something that a person is actually going to say when they're like fumbling about feelings that they don't fully understand or whatever. And that's, you know, like that's so emblematic of what I was sort of trying to get at earlier when talking about like character being sort of being uh prioritized over plot right like give us i love those moments where it's just a character um yeah kind of talking in a real way about about their inner their inner life a way that rings true that rings authentic and we do get so much of that in an unmarried woman as well not just through um the main character, but but that circle of friends, like I, I sort of think of that that circle of friends of hers as like a proto Sex in the City thing mm. going on there a little bit. Yeah, and, and they even yeah. call them like they even get referenced as a consciousness raising group too, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, but yeah, and and yeah, like one of them is you know you were you mentioned this minute ago, Anita. Like one of them very clearly is talking about like uh, ma I think manic depression, right? She talks about like. Yeah. Oh, you know, the, the low moods are so low, but boy, do I miss the, I miss the high moods. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's Kelly yeah. Bishop, who is it, a legend. She's I, the mom in Dirty Dancing. <laughs> I know. I was like, what? I know, I know this for what do I, oh my and God. The, and, and then the grandma and the Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yes, totally. Oh, totally. okay. So yeah, I, I recognize yeah. her. Uh, sorry, sorry. Sorry to all the dirty dancing. The fact that I've seen that movie hundreds of times, I definitely was like, oh, it's the grandma and Gilmore Girls. Like, that's yeah. where <laughs> I went. Because she's so much more iconic in that, I think. Definitely. Um, so it, it's this is actually, and Donald Sutherland, it took me forever to realize who he was because I was like, I know him. And like, just mm. the the seeing these actors younger, right? And mm -hmm. in these, yes. anyways, none of that really matters. But but it is, it is interesting. Nonetheless, one thing that... Um, in relation to the fact that I'm like, uh, these women like are these cool badass women, and then all of a sudden they're like, I'm in love with you, and then they're like, you know, boring. Um, mm -hmm. This kind of happens in Clute, but I think the difference is because we get some of her inner monologue via her therapist. Like, I understand more the attraction to him. It's not just something that happens overnight, even though it kind of does. But the fact that you right. get those lines right where she's like, oh. 
there's something happening here that's different. Um, it's like an exposition without being exposition in a way that like right. allows me as the as a very cynical viewer be like, okay, mm-hmm. I guess yeah. like this random guy who like forced himself into your house and now you're like in love with him. Like you're like, okay, I mm-hmm. see what's happening. But um, yeah. The uh, yeah. the other thing. So I um, I didn't like Clue as much as I hoped I would. Um, but I I I really loved a lot of parts of Unmarried Woman. Like mm-hmm. the there's I don't understand why Jill Clayburg is not a household name. Same. Like what the fuck? She's remarkable. Uh, the like the I, she just blew me away in the, this whole yeah. movie. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about is how surprised I was that a male director in the 70s captured the energy of nonstop sexism at every turn. Mm. Right. Like I wasn't really expecting that. And yes, like feminist movement is like solidly underway in the 70s um, at this point. But the fact that I can't remember her, <laughs> the character's name um, that Jill Clayburgh plays, but Erica, Erica, thank you. The fact that she like has this dope relationship with her daughter, but is also navigating like this guy who assaults her in a cab that keeps being like, what? I didn't do anything wrong. And then like all these guys hitting on her and then the tension around that, like her husband being, it's just like this constant, uh, you know, even the guy, the painter guy, like he's kind of a dick and he's like, I'm in love with you. I will take care of you immediately. And she's like, what the fuck, man? (laughs) Chill out. We just had sex. I love the scene where her husband tells her that he is in love with another woman because what happens is in that scene is that he starts sobbing and sputtering like a baby and you know as if like which which just kind of i think you know it's as if the emotional labor should then (laughs) shift to erica like comforting him for him being in love with another woman, right? It, and like she doesn't do it, like to her credit. Mode. Like yeah, she like walks away and mm-hmm. and she, like she and she throws up and everything. But but just that even that that react like the way that he tells her, it just it struck me as so like typical of a man, you know, yeah, like expecting a woman, you know, or or his you know, his his wife in this case, I guess, to like attend to his like emotional needs, even when like he's being like so devastating to her. Um, I I do appreciate though, seeing a man cry at something that sure. isn't like murder. Like that, I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's cool. Like, I and, and yeah, not to undermine, like completely agree with everything you're saying. Just want to put that little yeah. caveat of like, we don't usually see men cry and and show that type of vulnerability even if it is a little bit manipulative in this situation you know in this situation Uh, yeah i mean i believe that he genuinely like yeah didn't want to hurt his daughter and didn't want to hurt erica but mm, but he still still come on thinks he can be you know somehow he can get away with being the good guy because he feels bad yeah i really liked that this like erica's character is consistent in her like boldness and in mm-hmm. her like humanity throughout the whole film. So like she starts really confident and she's like running around her house in her underwear. She that scene where she's like, I am the ballerina, like yes. the prima ballerina thing. I was like, what is this movie? Like, <laughs> this is so fucking good. And I love that, like, she's like, okay, I'm devastated and I have feelings, and this thing that I thought was my whole life is ending what do I do now? And she's like, I guess I'm going to sleep with someone with a man and see what that feels like. And like, she's kind of honest about it, right? Like she says yeah. to him, never done this before. Like, cool it, buddy. Um, and, and in her relationship with the painter, she's also like, she's just fiercely independent in a way that like still allows space for the flawedness and the uncertainty and the fear and the ups mm-hmm. and downs of everything, you know, like she yells at her, her daughter's, boyfriend um and then immediately realizes that she's just taking it out on Mm -hmm. you know taking out her frustration and like i just loved all of that i think Mm -hmm. there's really a lot there with the relationship between erica and her daughter patty who's 15 and i was really trying i mean this this happens anytime i watch 
a movie where I can never tell how old people are supposed to be. So like when the painter says that he's 42 and I was like, I thought that was a 60 year old man. But the uh, I, I, so I was kind of doing some math. I'm like, OK, this is a 15 year old teenager. I'm guessing Erica married her husband when she was really young, like, you know, 21, 22 in the early 60s when she maybe was expecting to be a kind of typical Upper West Side housewife. And now she's learned from her friends and she's even learned from her daughter and her daughter has learned from her. Like there was a lot of interest to me about her, Erica going to her therapist and talking about puberty and talking about those kinds of emotions that she's feeling again now that she's relearning Mm -hmm. how to be a single person. And her daughter tells a story about a classmate whose abortionist kissed her on the mouth after taking $200 to perform the abortion. And I'm thinking like, I can't imagine Erica was having that kind of conversation with her own mother in the 50s. Right. Um, uh, yeah. It, it's really, yeah. it's really, I think then, it's like seeing a person who could not have existed when she was her daughter's age. Like she mm. is becoming the sort of person she might never have seen as a role model when she was young and now she is that person it was really i I want to watch this movie again i mean clute as well but clute did feel in some ways like i i know what to expect out of this movie whereas with an unmarried woman i was at times like oh this is a very grand romantic scene or this feels very new york and cinematic and at other times i was like yeah it's just a a lady pulling a face in front of the mirror like like a normal (laughs) human being I want to mention just real quick, there's a detail I really, a throwaway detail I really love in that in exchange where they talk about the, you know, her daughter's, someone her daughter knows having an abortion, where I, I think Erica asks, like, well, how did she pay for it? You know, mm-hmm. $200. And, and she's like, well, we all chipped in. And it's like, you know, just kind of like this little nod to like women and girls, I think all like so often kind of crowdfunding in various ways or like supporting each other in those times of need, right? When they can't go to, if you can't go to your, can't go to your parents, you can't, you know, what are you going to do? And having that, that kind of support network there, I thought was a lovely little detail. Um, And gosh, what a New York movie, as you say. I mean, both of these, I think are, are, are great New York films, but that apartment, the view that they have in that apartment, like the bridge out the window in um, an unmarried woman. It's just like, and, and all the, I mean, I just love the, the liveliness of, of it in a, in, you know, the New York, the, the parties, you know, the artist parties, the Saul's like well-lit artists loft. Mm. Um, I just love all that, all that stuff. Um, Oh, I noted a similarity as well that they both eat their food out of the devices in which they cook them. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, (laughs) The loft made me think about that. So um, in Clute, she, uh, Brie drinks her smoothie out of her blender and in, uh, which, which that I was like, cool. She's like rushing to get ready. That makes sense. Why make another dish dirty? But then in, um, in an unmarried woman in that loft, she, she pulls up with like a, a, pot on a pan on a towel and they're just like eating scrambled eggs out of the pan and i was like interesting like that's just a character development thing like why would you do that i don't know i think it's like it's such a like a moment that just feels like this casual this like lived in it's like a lived in moment like a moment where people they don't they're not like putting on pretenses with each other they're yeah they're just i gotta say that whole hmm. scene though i was worried so she's yelling from the kitchen being like how do you like your eggs? You want, hot, sauce, you want hot sauce, cheese, yeah. you know, whatever. And mm-hmm. I kept waiting for him to get mad at her for interrupting his mm. art. Mm. Um, and I and when he was just like, hey, baby, I love you. I was like, whoa, what is this? I'm so confused. <laughs> like, I just kept waiting for the the other shoe to drop. Well, it's kind of then mm-hmm. like uh, Kelly Bishop trying to give her advice. She's like, there's not a lot of decent men out there. You've actually fallen for one who likes you and isn't a total asshole. <laughs> like. You know, that's still the reality for a lot of people is like, uh, I should probably go for this. And she doesn't have to. Yeah, it's great. I also was like, you can date this guy and not go to Vermont for two months or five months or whatever the fuck, you know, like that is possible. But that clearly wasn't that was like it took me a minute to be pressure on, though. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Uh, I do like that in Clute, um, to kind of go back to that casual, like, you know, she drinks out of the, she drinks her smoothie out of the blender. Like her, one of her ideas of like a good time or a, n- a night well spent is just like being alone in her apartment, like drinking wine and smoking pot. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Um, I, I, I do really want to talk for a bit about the, um, the villain in Clute, just from a, a cinematic like and a visual kind of perspective, because I, I think that this guy, so um, who has been, you know, like killing women, and um, I mean, it, it's a fascinating, you know, depiction of. I think the I think Kula is really wanting to emphasize his power within society. He and mm. because he, we see him mostly, we see him in this office very high in, you know, some Manhattan like high rise. And but the image, it's not at all shot like a typical, you know, office executive scene where, you know, it's like might be kind of warm and you might see a desk with like, um, you know, uh, you know, pictures like uh, like somebody's family on the desk and like whatever. There's something about the way that it's shot that I think it's I, I don't want to say it's abstract, but it's kind of minimalist and really like emphasizes like this. It's like man in suit behind big desk with like power. Um, yeah, and it's and, kind like, of he like does a this- high tech office. Like he has yeah. a remote control door. It's it's stark in a way that I think it's stark. You wouldn't see that design until like a American Psycho. Like it's just it's felt a little out of yeah. time and place. Exactly, exactly. But if in an effective way, I think, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it really, to me, emphasizes that that this is a man who is who exists within the echelons of power. And really, like when he does his spiel at the end where he's like explaining to Bree um, his, uh, you know, his or er, the, th- the things that he's done, um, it's it's. It's that typical, you know, in a way it's all rooted in that that kind of that very patriarchal thing that like women like by turning me on in this way, women are like transgressing and like need they like they shouldn't do that. And that's why you need that's why you need to be punished effectively. Um, It's like even though the urges and the you know, the, the, the imp- sexual impulses and everything are inside him. They are his. They belong to him. It is it is just the women who exist and who tap into those things that he, you know, hates and that he because he can't and, and that he blames um, because as a man, like, I mean, it's it's I don't know. That's just so, so such a I mean, it's still a thing today. This idea sometimes of like, you know, on campuses well women walk around in in these clothes and it's distracting because it turns me on or whatever like it's like it's right. like fuck you dude like that's your i mean it's that 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 patriarchal need to kind of c- to control and that men want you know they want the angel and the whore and you know and women pay the price for it i can't say always. that i didn't note that nobody ever wore a bra in these movies. <laughs> Not because I was right? like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah time to be super yeah. horny. <laughs> that again, I was hey, like, oh, hey, yeah, no, it was hard not to notice Jane Fonda's breasts. It was just something where I was movie. like, you know, that even mm-hmm. that I feel like did, did that kind of go away for a minute in society, that taboo or something. But um, mm. you asked Anita about why Jill Clayburg isn't a household name. I also was totally unfamiliar with her. And I saw, and it would be overly simplistic to say that this is the reason or the only reason why, but Jane Fonda won Best Actress, won the Best Actress Oscar for Clute in 1972. And she also won in 1979 for Coming Home, beating out Jill Clayburg, who was nominated for An Unmarried Woman. Jill Clayburgh was also nominated the next year for Starting Over, but she lost to Sally Field, who won for Norma Ray, which was a role that had initially been offered to Jill Clayburgh, but which she turned down. And it did seem to me that Clayburgh had a lot of distinct 
careers. She had time on Broadway. She did a lot of television, a lot of television movies. But it was surprising to me that she wasn't so much as the grandmother in a soap opera <laughs> in the 90s or aughts. Like, I really was completely unfamiliar with her. And she had, um, to me, a more memorable performance in this movie. I mean, I haven't seen Coming Home since I was a teenager, but um, Jane Fonda, I think, has just so cemented herself also as a legend. By the time this movie comes around, like, she's well past Barbarella, you know? So it's, it's really... Um, it's just kind of surprising that Jill Claver just yeah. has this flash in ho- in on the big screen in Hollywood. I think. Hmm. Yeah, Jane Fonda actually gets name dropped in an unmarried woman as like a contemporary right. woman on screen. Who the the women in the group were all like, oh yeah, but they're not they're not the same as the w- women we grew up with. And I think every generation feels that way, right? That the oh that the or often does like that. That, oh, the women we grew you have the nostalgia that kind of clouds your perception. And of course, like, obviously the women, Betty Davis and the Rita Hayworth and those women had a different, right. like cinema was different then and wi- women to be stars needed a different quality. So yes, there was something maybe more steely and more like, I don't know, just a, a different quality than what Jane also, Fonda brings to the screen. Also an extremely controlled yeah. PR presence, <laughs> you know? Yes. Like there yes. were 100% gossip machines and stuff, but it was different than <laughs> Jane <today>. Fonda <laughs> yes. could do the AMC <laughs> promo video where Heartbreak feels good in a place like this, but Nicole Kidman, Kidman couldn't do Clute. That's what I'm getting from this conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be... A, I would not hate it as much if it was Jane Fonda doing it. Let's, let's just um, say that. This is a completely bonkers <laughs> thing. I'm watching the show The First Lady on Showtime, and Gillian Anderson is mm. playing Eleanor Roosevelt. It's very, it's, it's strange. It's strange. But I was noting this because I watched both of these movies this weekend that uh, both of Eleanor Roosevelt's love interests are played by... Donald Sutherland's son and Jill Clayburgh's daughter. So that was just kind of a oh, random wow. <laughs> Venn diagram of things I was watching this weekend. But Lily Rabe mm-hmm. is Jill Clayburgh's daughter and she's a big TV actress now. Did you notice that or did you just find well, it in Google? I obviously know Kiefer Sutherland. I wasn't, I didn't know who, like, yeah. Lily Rabe is a name I knew. And then when I was researching Jill Clayburgh and I was like, wait, I know that face. I've seen her being squirreled away in the White House hallways by Jillian Anderson in prosthetic teeth. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, speaking of bad accents, y'all know I have so much dislike for. Nicole Kidman's American accent. Um, I watched Dracula, which Dracula? for the first time, the Bram Stoker's nineteen ninety two for Fort okay. Coppola. Yeah, mm-hmm. yo, I know this is completely off topic. I don't. This is bonus material, but holy shit! Oh, I gotta talk about it. I only That's just I watched it for okay, the first time back- myself, like a year ago, if that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So, well, I just was thinking about Keanu Reeves <laughs> in that movie where you're like, "What was this casting?" All right. Um. Okay. 70s we are we can stay on topic it's fine i i i feel like these are such fascinating you know for all the reasons we talked about as like you know indicative of like a a place to talk about the 70s i um i feel like the the probably the go-tos for 70s would be the um the like godfather and the uh, Goodfellas was that seventies or was that eighties? Like no, the, the, that it, was Goodfellas is early nineties. Oh fuck, uh, not that one. What's the other one I'm thinking of? Well, so you might be so Scorsese's, you know, probably go to seventies film is Taxi Driver. Yeah, like those feel like those feel like. Yeah, sorry, it's not obviously not Goodfellas. Um, those feel like when people talk about the seventies, that's what they sure. go to, right? Of like these like oh, reading realism or whatever. And I think there's something yeah. really nice to be like, okay, but there's yeah. all this other shit that happened mm-hmm. that were that was celebrated, and, right? Both of these films oh, were like yeah. nominated for Oscars and were considered like uh, amazing pieces of work at the time. Yeah, and 
Carolyn, I was actually going to ask you, is it because you're a New Yorker now? Like, I think all 1970s movies are set in New York, except Chinatown, which isn't <laughs> set in the 70s, which is why I feel like it makes sense that it's not New York. But I was like, oh, this was the only cinematic landscape right. I can think of. Like, Taxi Driver is is a movie I've watched a few times, and it's like yeah. that feeling of New York that you get in all of yeah. these movies. Mm-hmm. I also feel like there's something interesting happening at the end of the 70s here where um, mm-hmm. you've got Jaws, you've yeah. got so, Alien, yeah. you've got uh, Star Wars came Star out at the Wars, end yeah. of the 70s. And those feel 70, like yeah. the 80s, right? Like I think when right, we think so, about the, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's it's interesting that, that you know, I, I talked, or I think early in the episode about these directors, you know, uh, you know, De Palma, Coppola, Scorsese, etc. Want, yeah, wanting to like do something, kind of break away from the studio system, or do not not break away from the studio system, but change the way it operated and do films that were very unlike what studio films had always done in terms of their commercial gloss and so on. But yes, you also have in that you know friends with that same group. You have Spielberg and Lucas, and Spielberg in the seventies gives us Jaws. Uh, Lucas gives us Star Wars. So by the time the 70s are on their way out, the contemporary blockbuster has basically been born. I'd say Jaws. Jaws is basically is often considered the the first like blockbuster in the modern sense of a film that just really dominates the cultural landscape in a in a in a huge way that which turned into, you know, a m- studio machinery that now really threatens the the kinds of films that that mm. the directors who kind of define the 70s really want to make. I mean, so you have Scorsese now, like, you know, he had to go to Netflix to get uh, The Irishman funded because studios didn't want to fund, like, his lengthy, like... 5,000-hour fucking yeah. goddamn... Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, yeah. I, I just um, wanted to yeah. know oh. because I... At first, I, th- I felt, like, mildly uncomfy with the fact that these were um maybe the best female character portrayals we were going to get were written and directed by men from this decade but in an unmarried yes. woman the teenage daughter patty does reference Lena Mueller. so it made me think i was like all right we have mm-hmm. paul mazursky is like clearly a fan <laughs> of uh, at least you know the first yeah. woman who got the best director nomination at the oscars uh and the, and the only one for a few decades um, I did want to mention Elaine May w- was sort of operating in the studio system and making some great films in the 70s. But yes, I mean, of course, sadly, like still tremendously, uh, that whole landscape tremendously uh, male dominated, obviously. Yeah. Um, I OK. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you listen to me ever. Uh, instead of Goodfellas, I meant Scarface, <laughs> but that was also an 80s movie, so none of that yep. even matters. <laughs> I think I was just thinking of like De Palma energy feels like 70s kind of space. Um, oh, the yeah. Other, the other thing um, in the 70s that I'm thinking about, so and, and this is because I've been listening to, um, you must remember this is miniseries about or season about like erotica, like 80s erotica, like 70s going into the 80s. And Mm -hmm. like Last Tango in Paris, which is notoriously horrifying, um, is in the 70s, right? And I think that this period also starts that like Mm -hmm. really pushing the boundaries of like sex on screen and like seduction and like blurring lines between what's, you know, porn and and not, I guess, whatever, however you phrase that. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. Um, And... Uh, this is also when we're getting a lot of the horror stories about how act like mm. directors are treating actors, uh, female specifically female actors and stuff. So that's just been kind of on my mind of like going through some of these this this time period. You know, yeah, that, that's like a scene in, in Taxi Driver that I I didn't really understand when I first watched it in I don't know two thousand five or something when um, Travis takes his date to the porn theater. And she's offended and, and leaves. And I thought, like, I didn't even really have a concept of the porn theater in 2005. But that it was something that you could go, physically go to, but then also, yeah, I mean, it was almost shocking to see some of the 
the sex and sexuality in the in these movies. Oh, absolutely. Looking at how far we've come, um, Anita, you have certainly we've talked about the Hayes Code. You know that has been the thing. You didn't. Bring, I, I did that's bring it I was up. Like, I'm going to bring it up. I promised I wouldn't bring it up. I'm going to spare you. <laughs> no, but I, I didn't know. Uh, I thought the Hayes Code like ended yeah. in the late in the 40s or something, but it ended in the 60s, I believe. So like this really is such. Even in the 60s, we had um, so many more restrictions on what could be shown. And um, well, and the Hayes Code was replaced with the rating system that we know today, but that's gone through so many iterations. So like. You know, the films that I'm talking about that were really kind of pushing boundaries for better, or for worse, um, you know, X rating wasn't right. reserved just for porn. Right. And so all these filmmakers were trying to get their movies rated R and not X that included really explicit sexual scenes, um, which is just not a reality of how rating how the rating system works today. Right. Or how we view it. And so really interesting to think about that evolution of like pulling out of the Hayes Code, the tension that was happening there. And then um, today it's just like, yeah, it's like nothing. <laughs> like we don't, it's just, if you don't have a ridiculous, I, um, I just watched Mission Impossible today. And um, the Brian De Palma one, the first one. Yeah. And okay. there's like, a, there's not even a sex scene in it. They just like hold hands right. and then it's insinuated that they but fucked. And it was just thing. really so funny to me. <laughs> I was thinking about like, what's the, what's the television that's in the 70s? Like, what are people actually consuming? And you have like the most G-rated, like the Partridge family, the Brady Bunch and stuff going on. And then you can go to the movies and see like Jane Fonda's descriptions of what kind of party you can have with her as a, as a call girl. And now I feel like you watch television to get like <laughs> Colin Firth eating Tony Collette's butt in the staircase. And then you go to the movies and it's like Marvel, like Avengers who, you know, barely take their shirt off. And I'm like, yeah. it's completely flopped, like foot flopped. I, I do think there's a weird, weirdly, we're in a weirdly sexless era yeah. of cinema. I think like and I think I think I guess Marvel that that owes something to like the proliferation of the Marvel blockbuster and like the mainstream like family family friendly friendly blockbuster. But yeah, I mean, it's it's and, and I don't know. I, I it's it's there's weirdly... a there's a lot of skin and there's not a lot of right. like se it's not sexy, yeah. you know, there, it's yeah, like paint exactly. by numbers kind of shit. There's an there's an amazing Artic there's an amazing article uh, or like an opinion piece about this and it's called let me let me find the title really quick because it speaks exactly to what you um just said Anita. while you're it's looking like, that up i'm just gonna say yeah. that dracula is extremely <laughs> sexy <laughs> i was it is so a very surprised. sexy movie right but in yes. relation to what we're talking about of like it yeah. It surprised me how not like I expected it to be really cheesy and over the top and like yeah. it just kind of worked. Whereas now, yeah, yeah. it's not. Yeah, I mean, there's I, I love Fast and the Furious. OK, so like those movies are so er erotic about cars and tech, <laughs> you know, but then about like cars. there might be yes. a shot of like a a girl in a short skirt where they're like, mm, check those legs out. And then that's it. Like there's no. You know, but there, it's like that part of our collective audience experience has just been reserved for like when you're watching television at home, you can enjoy this. But well, and yeah. that's the thing about in the 80s, right, is that you get VHS. And so some of these movies that became that that were like, you know, the 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 word on the street was like, it's super sexy. It's this and that like, holy shit, you're going to see. Yeah. what's his face's butt and like thrusting or whatever people started yeah. wanting to do that at home. Right. And so mm -hmm. the movie business got like the home movie business, even if a movie flopped in the, in the um, theaters, people wanted to watch it at home. Privately, Next season on you know? Patreon, all the movies will be the nineties, yeah. like sexy movies. <laughs> yeah. We'll only do sexy movies. I love that. Uh, the article that I was thinking of, it's called, Everyone is beautiful and no one is horny. Mm. Um, it's on a website called bloodknife.com. It's by R.S. Benedict. And it's a really, I think it's a really thought-provoking read about, like, about the, yeah, the sexlessness of of modern cinema. Um, so Great. I encourage folks to, yeah, I definitely want to read that. Look for that, yeah. Carolyn, 
Yo. We always love having you. Thank you so much. I know you said, like, I'm not an expert. I'm just a fan. But I also, I fans are know a lot and have very mm. useful, interesting takes on stuff. And we, I love listening to you talk about movies. So thank you for doing Thanks. this. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It was it was a real delight. Is there anything you want to plug anywhere people can find you? Just find me on Twitter at Carolyn Michelle. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Our show is engineered by Rob Perra. Carrie Stimson provides technicals for artwork by Jamie Varon. And our intro music is by Phil Circus. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Bye. Bye.